Chapter Nine of The Lone Wolf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The Lone Wolf by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter Nine. Disaster. Having fulfilled his purpose of making himself acquainted with the personnel of the opposition, Lanyard slammed the door in its face, thrust his hands in his pockets, and sauntered downstairs, chuckling, his nose in the air, on the best of terms with himself. True, the fat was in the fire and well ablaze. He had to look to himself now, and go warily in the shadow of their enmity. But it was something to have faced down those four and he wasn't seriously impressed by any one of them. Papineau, perhaps, was the most dangerous in Lanyard's esteem, a vindictive animal, that Papineau, and the creatures he controlled, a murderous lot, drug-ridden, drink-bedeviled, vicious little rats of Belleville, who'd knife a man for the price of an absinthe. But Papineau wouldn't move without leave from de Morbihan and unless lanyard's calculations were seriously miscast de morbihan would restrain both himself and his associates until thoroughly convinced lanyard was impregnable against every form of persuasion murder was something a bit out of de morbihan's line something at least which he might be counted on to hold in reserve and by the time he was ready to employ it lanyard would be well beyond his reach Wertheimer, too, would deprecate violence until all else failed. His half-caste type was as cowardly as it was blackguard. And cowards kill only impulsively, before they've had time to weigh consequences. There remained Smith, Enigma, a man apparently gifted with both intelligence and character. But if so, what the deuce was he doing in such company? Still, there he was, and the association damned him beyond consideration. His sorts were all of a piece, beneath the consideration of men of spirit. At this point, the self-complacence bred of his contempt for Messieurs de Morbihan at sea, bred in its turn a thought that brought the adventurer upstanding. The devil! Who was he? Michael Lanyard, that held himself above such vermin, yet lived in such a way as practically to invite their advances. What right was his to resent their opening the door to confraternity, as long as he trod paths so closely parallel to theirs that only a sophist might discriminate them? What comforting distinction was to be drawn between, on the one hand, a blackmailer like Wertheimer, a chevalier d'industrie like de Morbihan, or a patron of Apaches like Popineau, and on the other himself, whose bread was eaten in the sweat of thievery. He drew a long face, whistled softly, shook his head, and smiled a wry smile. Glad I didn't think of that two minutes ago, or I'd never have had the cheek. Without warning, incongruously, and, in his understanding, inexplicably, he found himself beset by recurrent memory of the girl, Lucia Bannon. For an instant he saw her again, quite vividly, as last he had seen her, turning at the door of her bedchamber to look back at him, a vision of perturbing charm in her rose-silk dressing-gown, with rich hair loosened, 
cheeks softly glowing, eyes brilliant with an emotion illegible to her one beholder. What had been the message of those eyes, flashed down the dimly lighted length of that corridor at Troyon's, ere she vanished? Adieu, or au revoir. She had termed him, naively enough, and a gentleman. But if she knew, suspected, even dreamed, that he was what he was? He shook his head again, but now impatiently, with a scowl and a grumble. What's the matter with me, anyway? Mooning over a girl I never saw before tonight. As if it matters a whoop in hepsidum what she thinks. Or is it possible I'm beginning to develop a rudimentary conscience at this late day? Me! If there were anything in this hypothesis, the growing pains of that late blooming conscience were soon enough numbed by the hypnotic spell of clattering chips, an ivory ball singing in an ebony race, and croaking croupiers. For Lanyard's chair at the table of Chaman de Fer had been filled by another, and, too impatient to wait a vacancy, he wandered on to the salon dedicated to Roulette tested his luck by staking a note of five hundred francs on the black, won, and incontinently subsided into a chair and an oblivion that endured for the space of three-quarters of an hour. At the end of that period he found himself minus his heavy winnings as chemin de fer, and ten thousand francs of his reserve fund to boot. By way of lining for his pockets there remained precisely the sum which he had brought into Paris that same evening, less subsequent general disbursements. The experience was nothing novel in his history. He rose less resentful than regretful that his ill-luck obliged him to quit just when play was most interesting, and resignedly sought the cloak-room for his coat and hat. And there he found de Morbihan, again, standing all garmented for the street, mouthing a huge cigar and wearing a look of impatient discontent. "'At last!' he cried in an aggrieved tone as Lanyard appeared in the offing. "'You do take your time, my friend!' Lanyard smothered with a smile whatever emotion was his of the moment. "'I didn't imagine you really meant to wait for me,' he parried with double meaning, both to humor de Morbihan and hoodwink the attendant." "'What do you think?' retorted the Count, with asperity. "'That I'm willing to stand by and let you moon around Paris at this hour of the morning, hunting for a taxicab that isn't to be found, and running God knows what risk of being stuck up by some misbegotten Apache? But I should say not. I mean to take you home in my car, though it costs me a half-hour of beauty sleep, not lightly to be forfeited at my age.' The significance that underlay the semi-humorous petulance of the little man was not wasted. "'You're most amiable, Monsieur le Comte,' Lanyard observed, thoughtfully, while the attendant produced his hat and coat. "'So now, if you're ready, I won't delay you longer.' In another moment they were outside the clubhouse, its door shut behind them, while before them, at the curb, waited that same handsome black limousine which had brought the adventurer from La Baye. Two swift glances right and left showed him an empty street, bare of hint of danger. "'One moment, monsieur,' he said, detaining the con with a touch on his sleeve. "'It's only right that I should advise you. I'm armed.' "'Then you're less foolhardy than one feared. 
if such things interest you, I don't mind admitting I carry a life preserver of my own. But what of that? Is one eager to go shooting at this time of night? For the sheer fun of explaining to Sergeants de Ville that one has been attacked by Apaches? Providing always one lives to explain. It's as bad as that, eh? Enough to make me loath to linger at your side in a lighted doorway. Lanyard laughed in his own discomfiture. Monsieur le Comte, said he, there's a dash in you of what your American pal, Mysterious Smith, would call sporting blood, that commands my unsnitted admiration. I thank you for your offered courtesy, and beg leave to accept. De Morbihan replied with a grunt of none too civil intonation, instructed the chauffeur to Troyon's, and followed Lanyard into the car. Courtesy, he repeated, settling himself with a shake. That makes nothing. If I regarded my own inclinations, I'd let you go to the devil as quick as Popinot's assassins could send you there. This is delightful, Lanyard protested. First, you must see me home to save my life, and then you tell me your inclinations consign me to a premature grave. Is there an explanation, possibly? On your person, said the Count, sententious. Eh? You carry your reason with you, my friend, in the shape of the amber loot. Assuming you are right. You never went to the Rue de Bac, monsieur, without those jewels, and I have had you under observation ever since. What conceivable interest, Lanyard pursued evenly, do you fancy you've got in the said loot? Enough, at least, to render me unwilling to kiss it adieu by leaving you to the mercies of Popinot. You don't imagine I'd ever hear of it again, when his Apaches had finished with you? Ah, so, after all, your so-called organization isn't founded on that reciprocal trust so essential to the prosperity of such enterprises. Amuse yourself as you will with your inferences, my friend, the Count returned unruffled, but don't forget my advice. Pull wide of Popinot. A vindictive soul, eh? One may say that. You can't hold him? That one? No fear. You were anything but wise to bait him as you did. Perhaps. It's purely a matter of taste in associates. If I were the fool you think me, mused the Count, I'd resent that innuendo. As it happens, I'm not. At least I can wait before calling you to account. And meantime profit by your patience? But naturally, haven't I said as much? Still, I'm perplexed. I can't imagine how you reckon to declare yourself in on the amber loot. All in good time. If you were wise, you'd hand the stuff over to me, here and now, and accept what I chose to give you in return. But inasmuch as you're the least wise of men, you must have your lesson. Meaning? The night brings counsel. You'll have time to think things over. By tomorrow, you'll be coming to offer me those jewels in exchange for what influence I have in certain quarters. With your famous friend, the chief of the Sûreté, eh? Possibly. I am known also at La Tour Pointure. I confess I don't follow you unless you mean to turn informer. Never that. It's a riddle, then. For the moment only, but I will say this. It will be futile your attempting to escape Paris. Papineau has already picketed every outlet. Your one hope resides in me, 
and I shall be at home to you until midnight tomorrow, today, rather. Impressed in spite of himself, Lanyard stared, but the Count maintained an imperturbable manner, looking straight ahead. Such calm assurance would hardly be sheer bluff. I must think this over, Lanyard mused aloud. Pray don't let me hinder you, the Count begged with mild sarcasm. I have my own futile thoughts. Lanyard laughed quietly and subsided into a reverie which, undisturbed by de Morbihan, endured throughout the brief remainder of their drive. For, thanks to the smallness of the hour, the streets were practically deserted and offered no obstacle to speed, while the chauffeur was doubtless eager for his bed. As they drew near Troyon's, however, Lanyard sat up and jealously reconnoitred both sides of the way. "'Surely you don't expect to be kept out?' the Count asked dryly. "'But that just shows how little you appreciate our good Papineau. "'He'll never object to your locking yourself up where he knows he can find you, "'but only to your leaving without permission. "'Something in that, perhaps. "'Still, I make it a rule to give myself the benefit of every doubt.' "'There was, indeed, no sign of ambush that he could detect in any quarter, "'nor any indication that Papineau's Apaches were posted thereabouts.' Nevertheless, Lanyard produced his automatic and freed the safety catch before opening the door. "'A thousand thanks, my dear Count.' "'For what? Doing myself a service? But you make me feel ashamed.' "'I know,' agreed Lanyard, depreciatory. "'But that's the way I am. A little devil. You really can't trust me.' "'Adieu, Monsieur le Comte. Au revoir, Monsieur.' Lanyard saw the car round the corner before turning to the entrance of Troyon's, keeping his weather-eye alert the while. But when the car was gone, the street seemed quite deserted and as soundless as though it had been the thoroughfare of some remote village rather than an artery of the pulsing old heart of Paris. Yet he wasn't satisfied. He was as little susceptible to psychic admonition as any sane and normal human organism. But... He was just then strongly oppressed by intuitive perception that there was something radically amiss in his neighborhood. Whether or not the result of the Count's open intimations and veiled hints working upon a nature sensitized by excitement and fatigue, he felt as though he had stepped from the cab into an atmosphere impregnated to saturation with nameless menace. And he even shivered a bit, perhaps because of the chill in that air of early morning, perhaps because a shadow of premonition had fallen athwart his soul. Whatever its cause, he could find no reason for this, and, shaking himself impatiently, pressed a button that rang a bell by the ear of the concierge, heard the latch click, thrust the door wide, and re-entered Troyon's. Here reigned a silence even more marked than that of the street, a silence as heavy and profound as the graves, so that sheer instinct prompted Lanyard to tread lightly as he made his way down the passage and across the courtyard toward the stairway. And in that hush, the creak of a greaseless hinge, when the concierge opened the door of his quarters to identify this belated quest, seemed little less than a profanity. Lanyard paused and delved into his pockets, nodding genially to the blousy, sleepy old face beneath the guardian's nightcap. "'Sorry to disturb, monsieur,' 
he said politely, further impoverishing himself in the sum of five francs, in witness to the sincerity of his regret. I thank, monsieur, but what need to consider me? It's my duty. And what is one interruption more or less? All night they come and go. Good night, monsieur, Lanyard cut short the old man's garrulity, and went up the stairs, now a little wearily, of a sudden newly conscious of his vast and enervating fatigue. He thought longingly of bed, yawned involuntarily, and, reaching his door, fumbled the key in a most unprofessional way. There were weights upon his eyelids, a heaviness in his brain. But the key met with no resistance from the wards, and in a trice, appreciating this fact, Lanyard was wide awake again. No question but that he had locked the door securely on leaving after his adventure with the charming somnambulist. Had she, then, taken a whim to his room? Or was this but proof of what he had anticipated in the beginning, a bit of sleuthing on the part of Roddy? He entertained little doubt as to the correctness of this latter surmise, as he threw the door open and stepped into the room, his first action being to grasp the electric switch and twist it smartly but no light answered. "'Hello!' he exclaimed softly, remembering that the lights could readily have been turned off at the bulbs. "'What's the good of that?' In the same breath he started violently and swung about. The door had closed behind him, swiftly but gently, eclipsing the faint light from the hall, leaving what amounted to stark darkness. His first impression was that the intruder, Roddy or whoever, had darted past him and out, pulling the door to in that act. Before he could consciously revise this misconception, he was fighting for his life. So unexpected, so swift and sudden fell the assault, that he was caught completely off guard, between the shutting of the door and an onslaught whose violence sent him reeling to the wall, the eclipsed time could have been measured by the fluttering of an eyelash. And then two powerful arms were round him, pinioning his hands to his sides. His feet were tripped up, and he was thrown with a force that fairly jarred his teeth, half stunning him. For a breath he lay dazed, struggling feebly. Not long, but long enough to enable his antagonist to shift his hold and climb on top of his body, where he squatted, bearing down heavily with a knee on either of Lanyard's forearms, hands encircling his neck, murderous thumbs digging into his windpipe. He revived momentarily, pulled himself together, and heaved mightily in futile effort to unseat the other. The sole outcome of this was a tightening pressure on his throat. The pain grew agonizing. Lanyard's breath was almost completely shut off. He gasped vainly, with a rattling noise in his gullet. His eyeball started. A myriad corrosive lights danced and interlaced blindingly before them. In his ears there rang a roaring like the voice of heavy surf breaking upon a rock-bound coast. And of a sudden he ceased to struggle and lay slack, passive in the other's hands. Only an instant longer was the clutch of his throat maintained. Both hands left it quickly, one shifting to his head to turn and press it roughly cheek to floor. Simultaneously he was aware of the other hand fumbling about his neck, and then of a touch of metal and the sting of a needle driven into the flesh beneath his ear. That galvanized him. He came to life again in a twinkling, animate with threefold strength and cunning. 
the man on his chest was thrown off as by a young earthquake and lanyard's right arm was no sooner free than it shot out with blind but deadly accuracy to the point of his assailant's jaw a click of teeth was followed by a sickish grunt as the man lurched over lanyard found himself scrambling to his feet a bit giddy perhaps but still sufficiently master of his wits to get his pistol out before making another move end of chapter nine Recording by William Tomko